0: Welcome to Ramen Hunter, the podcast where we talk to hunters about their tales in the wild. My name is Edwin, a.k.a. the Ramen Schmo. Uh, today, we've got an awesome lineup of guests to talk ramen. First up is the beast himself, Abram, the ramen beast.
1: Yo, what up? What up? What up? Good to be here. Thank you. Let's do it.
0: Let's do it. Next up, we got the ramen writer, Brian, a.k.a. Ramen Adventures.
1: Hey, good morning from
2: Tokyo, Japan. Cold Tokyo, Japan.
0: It is, it is. Hope it's uh, not too cold out in Chicago where we got our next guest. Uh, We are Grace with Royalty today. We got uh, Mike Satinover, a.k.a. the Ramen Lord. Mike is a uh, leader in the ramen world, inspiring home cooks with his recipes, pop-ups, and discussions on channels like Reddit and Discord. He's written The Book of Ramen, which is the ramen Bible for English-speaking ramen cooks. And for today's purposes, uh, we are going to cover miso ramen, and I felt, uh, who better than someone who's lived it? So, uh... You know, Mike's been in Sapporo for uh, some time uh, in his uh, earlier in his uh, life, <laughs> so uh, we'll get to uh, pick his brain and uh, learn a little bit more about his, his uh, experiences out there. So, Mike, thank you very much for joining.
3: Thank you, thank you. Uh, super big fan of the podcast. Super big fan, also of Abram and Brian. Uh, really excited to get to talk about miso ramen today.
0: We're big fans of you, man. Big fans thank of you, you man. Likewise, likewise. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, jump into it. First off, you know, before we get into Ramen and, uh, and um, Mike's story, I just kind of every time I have a, the uh, podcast, I like to start off with uh, what have you guys been eating lately. So, let's start with um, Brian. Uh, maybe in the past week or two, how has you, or let's start with you know just January in general. How has ramen hunting been for you so far?
2: Oh, it's been great. You know, right now there's a kind of travel campaign going on in Japan only for people who have a foreign passport. And for 12,000 yen, about 120 bucks, you get a three-day pass to go to Tohoku. So you can ride the Shinkansen, the bullet trains, the local trains. And it's great. So I grabbed two of those and I did six days up in Aomori, Sendai, a little Tohoku trip, crushed a lot of ramen, did some other stuff, but it was excellent. I got to have a great bowl of um, my favorite one up in Aomori was at Hirakuya. I thought it was like one of those bolts Yeah, blows away. That
1: one's awesome.
2: What is it like for someone who's never been? I mean, it's one of these, it's a little, it's thicker style, you know, not like crazy thick cement style that you get in Tokyo now, but just like a really good thick niboshi, uh, homemade noodles, real fat, lots of chashu on it beautiful egg. You know, just it's one of those beautiful bowls. And I brought some ramen rookies with me and they uh were that was the one that they were blown away by. Nice. Nice.
1: They have the choice too of the like, the richer soup and the lighter soup, right?
2: You know what? They have 3. So they have the koikuchi, which is yeah. the thick one. Then they have the asari, but they also have one that what's it called? I think it's called like donibo hmm But they only have 10 a day of that. And mm-hmm. by the time
1: we got there, it was sold out. So another day. And is that also the place that where they like do the bamboo? They like tie it in a knot. <laughs> like the Menma. Uh right yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They do. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah,
2: yeah the Menma was like presented in, a you in, a, in a little yeah. bow. <laughs>
1: yeah. So funny.
0: You got a bow tie in your in your ramen. Nice. It's <laughs> a very trick. decorative, very decorative approach. All righty. Well, uh, for all you uh, cooks out there, you know, there's a uh, level to ramen plating, so take notes. Uh, Abram, um, how about yourself? How how Did you also use the pass and get around?
1: I used the pass a um, couple times to knock off some of the Jiros and visit some friends in Niigata. But more recently, like this week, last week, I'm trying right now. I'm working on the uh, the Hyakume 10 for Higashi Nihon, the top 100 for East Japan. So I had there were like five random shops in Sapporo of all places that I had to check off. So I went to Sapporo last week using a uh, United frequent flyer miles on ANA. And, Dedication. Oh yeah, it's great.
3: I saw you nice. hit up the Jiro in Sapporo too, which is I don't know. It's that's it's pretty up. funny to me. You yeah. went all the way to Hokkaido to try a Tokyo shop. I it's always uh, a had to a had to get dog. it off the list.
1: Had to get it off. Yeah. So, hit that and uh, yeah. What else? Um, just two days ago, I crushed this new shop that's like super popular in Ebisu. Maybe you guys heard of it, Ayagawa. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the new hot shop that everyone's lining up for in Ebisu, where they use the oyadori, the old chickens. And I think it's run by like a company from uh Shikoku or something Kagawa. So the noodles are kind of like, I guess they're using flour that they use in udon noodles and they use their, it's the, uh, the bamboo pole, the Aodake noodles in the shop. So like really thick wavy noodles with the Oya Dori chicken soup. Um, yeah, it was really good.
0: Actually, Abraham, I was going to ask you about that. That was my first bowl of this year. And, yeah. um, in the first, when I ate it, the first thing I thought of was uh, you because we talked about on an earlier pod. You had a style of ramen that also Kasaoka. used oyadori. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, how does that compare?
1: It's like the soup is very similar, but other than that, totally different. Because casaoka style, it's like thin. They're almost like similar to Hakata style noodles, thin straight noodles, and these are like really ultra thick, ultra wavy noodles. Um, But like the Chashu is kind of similar to the Kasaoka style too. So it like looks like they're taking elements from it. But overall, on the whole, it's totally different.
0: Okay, nice. And
1: quick side note, there's like, so we know this shop is run by a company. And I had Hiroshi do some research. And he said there's like a rumor that it's run by the same company that runs uh, the shop Kamotonegi in Okachimachi. But, I heard that rumor, yes. Yeah, but it's not confirmed. So we don't know. but
0: Yeah, there's very little information about that shop, which is yeah. actually kind of weird.
1: It's a good, it's a good shop, like delicious, but it has just like a hint of like, you know, chain like business, <laughs> you know, about it. So like I of course I would like it more if it was like, you know, like a one master like shokunin, but it's good, like definitely worth checking out. And in Ebisu, Central Tokyo everyone should check it out
0: yep yep Ayukawa at yeah. nebisu yeah i i i gotta go Ayakawa, to the, I'm sorry sorry
1: guys i gotta yeah. go to the door real
2: quick for a minute
0: yep well mike how about yourself i know uh, you can probably can't go out and eat much these days uh, given the situation in the states but what are you cooking uh
3: well so i did a event this weekend where we made some kits and that was just a standard miso so kind of fitting for the podcast i guess um We always go a little nuts on our uh, approaches here. So, like, we smoke the chashu, which is pretty crazy and pretty atypical. And the rest of the dish is kind of in line with what we do. We made the noodles. It was kind of fun. But you're right that ramen hunting in the U.S., especially now, is not so hot. Like, they're all doing takeout, and takeout ramen is, like, a different beast. So – I got to try one bowl that one of the chefs I was working with just wanted to mess around with. It was like this red curry uh, ramen with like tonkotsu and kind of reminded me a little bit of the Bossa Nova green curry style thing, but the noodles were almost like fettuccine, super thick, like super intense. So it's interesting because like in America, ramen makers are very, you know, if they're not, they don't, they don't have lineage to shops in Japan. They're, very open to like rapid experimentation, sometimes to detriment, but often just because they don't care. So you get to try some really bizarre, sometimes successful and sometimes not so successful bowls. But in terms of what I've been eating in general, you know, I'm eating mostly my own ramen, which is not that that noteworthy. I feel like
0: nonsense, nonsense. There's people who would kill for a bowl of yours. Like uh, Abram flew halfway around the world to try the uh, <laughs> Ramen Lords uh, right. creations. Right.
1: <laughs> that makes that just a side note that makes sense to me though like doing stuff like curry ramens and things that like where people understand the flavors because like to make like to make like a shoyu tare like overseas you don't have access to all these different shoyus but like maybe you understand like what it takes to make like a good curry sauce like that curry Mm -hmm. becomes your tare you know so right exactly yeah
3: as, especially if you're trying to do these like really newer wave styles that incorporate these u- ultra luxury ingredients, like these incredibly aged soy sauces or these special heritage breed chickens. It's like okay. the further you're down the rabbit hole, you go, the harder it is to replicate this in the U S and yeah. Abram, you mentioned this last time, but I think you're right that like trying to replicate a true Japanese style ramen is sort of a mistake. I think, you know?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think, I mean, Japanese food in general, not just ramen, it's all based on, like, seasonality and, like, what's local and, like, what's fresh. Right. So to try to, like, replicate whether it's ramen or, like, sushi, like, that's, like, same thing with sushi. Like, you know, if you're, like, in, like, Norway and you're, like, oh, we fly all our fish in from, like, Japan, like, from Skiji or whatever, I'm, like, yo, you should be using the local fish in Norway, you know? So it's, like... Same thing with ramen, like it's and that's like it's like kind of like it's a catch 22 because you have to have like the know how of ramen to like even to begin to use the local ingredients in your area. So if you don't know like how ramen works from like the ground up to like even to start to experiment with ingredients can be tricky. So it's yeah, it's tough. But like, yeah, I don't want to I don't want to ramble on and on here, but you get what I'm saying.
0: It is, you know, it gets kind of deep, but um, basically, what I'd like to see is people just using the best ingredients that they can get their hands on, not trying to recreate something from halfway around the world. Yeah. Uh, I think that'll create the best product.
3: I agree. And I also think uh, part of it is because America doesn't have like this true history of impacting the dish like other dishes in the U.S. You know, like pizza is a good example of how we kind of made it our own. We don't have that for ramen yet. We're just trying to figure it out. So we're still in the early stages of it so you just see people making the same thing the
1: ramen infrastructure it's so low it's just such a challenge to get like the basic building block for ramen right now just to like get like good high quality ramen noodles sure like so tough like it's it's hard it's why you see a lot of shops in the u.s making them right because it's just like yeah
3: You see a lot of shops in the US making them way more, I think, than in Japan. I mean, I would say that maybe half of the shops in the US or half the shops in Chicago that are, I mean, noteworthy are making their
1: own noodles, which is good. good.
3: Yeah, but it's the problem is like you need to know the technique, and I don't know if they all know the technique (laughs) required to make a good noodle. So it comes with its own challenges.
1: You got to start somewhere, right? True, true. Yeah.
3: I think that that's an area for growth in the U.S. Man, I'm sorry, Edwin. We're just, we're way off the rails on this conversation. <laughs> no worries. I was going to say
0: just, you uh, <laughs> know, for people hard who hard do hard. need a look place to start, they just sh- should go straight to the uh, Ramen Lord's book, um, which is free for everybody. The Book of the book of Ramen. Um, and just, that's a great, great starting point to figure out, as, you know, learn the basics and then go from there and just experiment. So, yeah, I mean, it is a, Deep topic for uh, um, philosophy of how ramen develops in the U.S., but um, I think you've really got people in the right direction.
3: we trying out here. We're just trying, you know, just for the love of, for the love of ramen. Really, that's all it is. Hey, well, guys. that's hey, He's welcome back. back, all right, Brian's back.
2: So, not not to do with ramen, but I, uh, I had a broken refrigerator in my home, right. <laughs>
1: I was going <laughs> to say you're trying. breathing heavily, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> no, get this.
2: So in Japan, you have to recycle refrigerators. You can't just throw it in the trash. So I signed up. The guys were going to come today. It's like 7,000 yen for the recycling fee and the pickup. And the guys come to my door. I'm on the fourth floor. And they're like, so uh, you have to pay us extra if you want us to bring it down the stairs. <laughs> and actually, 4, so it's these two burly guys, and this refrigerator is not that heavy, but I'm like, "Yo, how much?" And they're like, "Uh, four thousand yen." Break yourself, fool! Four thousand yen, forty bucks to bring it down the stairs. <laughs> That's
3: just straight up extortion, is what that is.
2: Yeah, and I'm like, but I'm like, "Yo, I can," because I can carry this thing. So I'm like, "Well, I'll do it." They're like, "Okay." So these two guys just watched me; it didn't even help. As I like slid this refrigerator down the four, down the four stairs. Oh my God. What the fuck?
1: I don't even say a B. I just have a, I just have a buddy like help me carry it like two blocks over and like put it in front of some business. <laughs> <laughs> Man.
0: Note to self, we live in a place with like an elevator. <laughs> Um, so I just kind of like to touch on current events and see what's out there. Um, for people who don't know, uh, Japan, for select prefectures in Japan, we are on a, under a state of emergency, which is started as of January 8th through January February 7th. So restaurants are to close by, restaurants, bars, everything uh, are supposed to close by 8 p.m. Uh, to help mitigate the spread of COVID. Uh, so in response, I saw this ramen shop out in Juju called Roo. Uh So they're typically open from 11 to 3 and then 5 to 10 at night. And they switched up their o- operating hours to start from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, I thought that was creative. Uh, so, um, so I was kind of curious, how, Abram and uh, Brian, have you seen any shops trying to switch up how they do things based so, on the announcement?
2: Edwin, I went to Rue today. Okay, nice. 7 a.m. <laughs> I was there for the opening. <laughs> uh, how was it?
0: How was it? Were there people there?
2: There were uh, four people in the shop when I got there, and there's only five seats. So, (laughs) yeah. I'm guessing because I think they're on a TV show or they were were on a morning TV show today. So, I'm guessing on the weekend, there's actually going to be a bit of a line for 7 a.m. ramen.
0: Interesting. I mean, I like ramen. yeah. Asada it it means morning ramen. uh, And it's more of a thing in – maybe up north, um, where, people actually, where people actually really do eat morning ramen, yeah, but it's Kitakata not a thing in Tokyo. Has,
2: Kitakata has an Asara culture. Yeah. Right. Yeah,
0: big in Kitakata. Exactly, exactly. And um, I think Yamagata as well, just basically up in the north, it's, it's a thing, but it's not a thing in Tokyo. So it's interesting to see uh, Ru do this. But they've been really creative about, during the whole COVID uh, in the past year, they, when, before takeout became a, a real thing, what they would do is they would have people come in with their own pots and they would just do, you know put servings into customers' pots so they can take do it for takeaway. Which I thought was hilarious. So Rue is very, very creative in how they approach COVID. So props to them.
2: Yeah, I'm not surprised. They're a part of the like Jiraigen family.
0: Okay. Nice. Where, nice. Um,
2: you know, he worked at Saikoro and Nakano and it's kind of that that Tokyo soul food style niboshi ramen and yeah those guys will definitely uh push the envelopes
0: definitely definitely i think yeah they're i think they'll be around for a long time i think as long as they're doing their thing i think people respect their their bowls and uh yeah i think they'll be fine hopefully Roo's knock good. on wood
1: i like Rue a lot
0: yeah yeah all righty um well let's move on to uh ramen lord uh and get into mike's story so for the people who don't know mike Where are you from? I am from Chicago, Illinois. Chi-town. I don't know if you guys can tell by my voice. Sometimes
3: I hit those A's a little too hard. So you'll just, you'll kind of hear it. You're like, oh, that guy's definitely from the Midwest.
0: I would think you're Canadian.
3: (laughs) (laughs) No, definitely American,
0: thoroughbred American (laughs) for sure. Maybe to a fault, honestly, but. (laughs) All right. And so how did you get into ramen? Like, what was the scene out like For in Chicago? Oh,
3: non-existent, man. I mean, I don't really think I got into ramen until college when I was uh, living in Sapporo, basically. I mean, I liked it. It existed, but it was just like a food of many foods. And I was always a foodie, but you go and live in a city that has such a deep history with that dish that you kind of can't help but be entranced if you're into food. And as I started eating it, I just started getting more and more entranced. I think you hear the story a lot that like somebody has like a particular bowl or a particular style or they go to japan and have real ramen for the first time and it just like kind of opens their eyes to the possibility of the dish and i already have an obsessive personality so i just kind of kept going and going eventually i ate like you know eventually i was eating ramen like every day and then you leave japan and the quality's not there so what are you going to do i just kind of had to start diving in even more so just kind of progresses and progresses and progresses and now i guess that's like
0: 11 years ago when that happened so it's been a long journey for sure well you hit on something that i was going to ask um and i i noticed with pretty much everyone i meet uh anyone who gets into ramen there's always one there's usually one bowl or one shop Mm -hmm. that flips that switch yeah so in your case what was it
3: yeah, it was definitely a Day in Susukino, so not the Ten, but that's because I didn't know what a Honten was at the time. And we'll talk about this shop because it's a pretty historically significant shop in a lot of ways, but it's so dramatically different from a lot of the offerings in the city. And it's still, even to this day, is a distinct style. And if you look at the rankings, it still tends to be like top 10, top 15, top 20. So it's pretty eye-opening as an experience of just like what this dish could be. Uh, I had been going to other miso ramen shops at the time, but that one was like different in a intense way. And it just was so eye opening. I kind of was like, okay, I got to find out what this dish really can be. And so then you just go crazy. You know, it's like go to all the shops, buy all the books, look at all the different rating places, look at Love, look at the ramen DB, see what shops are available and just start hitting them. You know?
0: Nice. Well, you've definitely uh, been, uh, they definitely fire under you. so uh,
3: Yeah, great. I mean, it's unfortunate. You know, I always go a little nuts when I go to Japan. I think like the last time I was in Sapporo, which was 2019, unfortunately, because of COVID. But it's like
0: 20 bowls in six days or something crazy like that. <laughs> I, know, so. I can understand. I mean, you, you know, when you, ha- when you have such limited access to it, you got to go crazy, I guess. Exactly. Um, I might have to do the same thing if I ever leave. So, nice. Um, so, okay. So, you went back to the States probably about 10 years ago or so. And then you kind of missed it. So you tried to recreate it as much as you could. Yeah. I so mean, then-
3: consider like this element of your life, right? You guys are all ramen hunters. You eat ramen all the time. Think about what America was like 10 years ago. Fundamentally the ramen landscape was super immature. And where I was living at the time was not Chicago. I was living in Madison, Wisconsin because I was going to school there. There was no ramen. It didn't even exist. So you just had to make it if you wanted to eat it and to go from eating it every day to not eating it at all. Fundamentally, I didn't really have a choice. I just had to start. And uh, ramen is complicated, as we all know. It's so complicated that like when I started making it, I was pretty terrible at it. Frankly, and there wasn't a lot of resources to guide how to make it. So I just got used to being terrible at making a dish for a while. And I kind of enjoyed that failure because you know, usually you make a recipe and it turns out fine, and then you go on and do the next thing. But for this, it was like really dozens and dozens of attempts and still not getting it. And I kind of like that because it it kind of pushed me in a direction to grow. You know, you kind of have to work hard in order to grow. You can't just be complacent. And eventually, the more you just do it, the more kind of addicted you get to it. You know, it's just like with eating it. You know, the more you eat it, the more addicted
0: you get to it. Nice, definitely. I can. I think we can all relate to that part. Yeah. So one thing I've noticed is that after, you know, years of working on it uh, at home, eventually you started bringing discussion to Reddit. Uh, So how was your experience with that?
3: I mean, you know, the ramen subreddit is an interesting place. I don't think it's very pretentious, which often means that the, you know, level of like execution is uh, varies by like quality. So there are people who are just doing like, the most random out there bowls and there are people who take it very seriously at the time when I posted, I think there were maybe 15,000 subscribers and now there's like 300,000 or something just to give you an idea of how long this has been growing. So me posting in a group of like 15,000 people is not a big deal. There was hardly anybody paying attention, right? So just there was also hardly anybody posting ramen at all of note in this thing. So just like to post something the homemade was intriguing to people, I guess it seemed like it was at least because people kept asking for recipes and people kept asking for techniques and I don't know, I was just messing around trying to figure it out. So it just made sense to share what I knew. I just, it it was never meant to be anything except like a, a, a way to keep myself honest in making ramen and to be, to maintain my interest in ramen and to in turn maintain my connection to Japan and to Sapporo where I had lived, you know? And so it just kind of kept continuing. I, I didn't have a plan, you
1: know.
0: Well, it seems like um, your uh, po- content really became a hit because there was actually substance to it. And it uh, sounds like you are probably the big reason why Reddit's uh, ramen subpage kind of grew from 15,000 to, was 300,000 now? So I mean, I, think I that-
3: don't know. It's fun. <laughs> you know, ultimately, I really just do this stuff for myself in a lot of ways. Like, I kind of selfishly make ramen, you know. And I think that's healthy because if I was just – making whatever people ask me to, i probably make a lot less, i probably make a lot of tonkotsu and I'd probably make a lot less miso, frankly.
0: Hmm. Okay. So then what was kind of the decision to uh, bring the conversation to a different, uh, uh, I guess channel, I guess discord. Oh, I mean, I don't have a discord. I, I just, you know,
3: there's this kind of, there are other people who have since become equally as interested in making ramen at home probably one of those big figureheads is the way of ramen uh uh I guess the way of ramen channel on youtube and he created a discord where kind of these ultra home cook nerds can kind of come together and make ramen and talk about the particulars and it's a little more fixated on the details and the really specific measurements i think in a way it's kind of inspired by some of this modernist cooking that you see so everything is scaled out everything is very particular everything is like measured everything is documented as opposed to kind of this i think ramen often has a lot of cooking by feel elements in older shops and newer shops are much more meticulous in their interpretation and you're seeing that even in these different communities where maybe the sub subreddit was just like oh i just did this chicken stock and i put shoyutari tare in it now it's like you know i had x grams of chicken bones and x liters of water and it was cooked for six hours and the Aromatics were added at X stage and steeped at X temperature for X number of time, right? Like much more meticulous in the interpretation. Um, so I, you know, that attracts me because that's kind of how I make ramen. I like to be meticulous in my documentation. So I've tried to be a little involved in that community as well.
0: Nice. Nice. Well, uh, shout out to way of ramen. It's a dope podcast and dope channel. So, um, uh, thanks, thanks to him for, uh, starting up the discord and getting yeah. the conversation, uh, uh, yeah, um, promoting cool. the conversation. Definitely a cool channel. So, what was kind of the uh, uh, the impetus to start the book of ramen?
3: Uh, well, I had been asked this a couple of times, and at the you know, I post all these recipes to the internet on Reddit, and they're kind of disheveled and disorganized, and I change my mind all the time, and I manipulate them and update them, and it, it was just hard for people to navigate kind of all of my random thoughts that have been posted. It wasn't like a blog, you know. If you look at like you know, Brian's ramen adventures blog is an example. Everything is meticulously organized and you can see all of this detail you can see it by time and what stops were. And it's like there in one place. Right. And for my posts, it wasn't in one place. It was just like, kind of had to scroll through everything and it was kind of a mess. So it just made sense to kind of put it in one consolidated area. And as I started thinking about it, I started thinking that a book might make more sense. So <laughs> I worked with my brother pretty heavily on this and, we've been working on this book maybe for two years now on and off, but with COVID coming in, I had a lot more free time and a lot more time sitting at a desk thinking about what I should do because I can't go outside. So a book just like kind of re spurred the interest in continuing this. And eventually we finished it. And I I say finished very lightly because the content always changes. I'm always messing around with new recipes. I'm always messing around with new ideas. I'm always changing things, but it exists as this living, breathing document on the internet that anybody can access. And I kind of like that. And I also like that I'm not asking anybody for money for it because I think a problem in ramen fundamentally is this level of secrecy that everybody just holds everything to the chest. They do their own shop thing. Maybe you have a person split off from the shop to kind of take ideas, but fundamentally people are not trading all of the details unless they're ultra famous. you know. So you'll see some books with details, but there's always secrets. And Uh, for reasons maybe we'll get into later in the podcast, I kind of have a philosophy of not having any secrets, so I just try to make sure that I say everything is out in the open, so making this thing free, making this thing available to anybody on the
0: internet just made sense. You're a bigger man than I am, because I'd be squeezing people for as much money as I could.
3: (laughs) I mean, it's not off the table, maybe someday, but I don't know.
1: know. All right. That's the Yamagishi-san way. You want someone to continue your taste. Ah,
0: right. uh-huh.
3: But I don't. <laughs> I'm not that. I'm not. I don't have that level of confidence in my capabilities, you know? Love, you know like, right?
1: Because right? everyone, he's like, he has like some famous quote where he's like, everyone's all about like my taste, my taste. But he's like, what's really important is like, who's going to continue your taste when you're gone? So interesting. Interesting. Why? that's why he was like so open to people opening Taisho Kens all over. And like Taishoken's known, he's known for Taishoken more now than like Nakano, where he like the Taishoken where he, right. came, you know, like right, you know? Yeah. yeah, it's true.
0: Yeah. Legacy, yes, definitely.
1: Yeah. So keep at it, Mike.
0: Thanks, man. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, man. So that kind of segues into the next thing is um you know the type of ramen that you make and you know for. Hunter is probably more so Brian and uh, Abram, more so than myself. When we go to a shop, we can kind of feel the intent of the shop. So, you know, Abram mentioned the shop that he went to in Ebisu where, you know, you kind of feel like, is this a business bowl or is it a bowl made with love? And, you know, sometimes you might kind of wonder. Sometimes you just know this is, um, and this person put their full heart into it. And sometimes, you know, like, yeah, you put corn and butter. You're obviously trying to <laughs> just take my money.
3: <laughs> oh, don't trigger me.
0: <laughs> so, you know, so what, you know, when you go about making your bowls, is there a certain philosophy or is, what do you want to say with your bowls? Yeah, it's a good
3: question. I mean, I think, I think about things in terms of their harmony and in terms of their interlocking relationship to one another. So that tends to mean that my bowls are relatively conservative. I don't think super far out the box. I tend to use consistent Japanese flavors, which is funny because we were just talking about how that's not where American ramen needs to be. But uh, I think that it helps create ultimately what I want, which is a balanced bowl. Like I want somebody to completely finish a bowl of ramen. I don't want there to be soup left over. I don't want there to be toppings left over. I want I don't want there to be noodles left over. And in order to accomplish that, the bowl has to be really balanced. So it has to be you know serve at the right temperature it has to be the right amount of soup the right amount of noodles it can't be too much in volume It can't be too salty can't be too sweet and it has to be complex enough that as you're eating it it's changing over time this is sort of a recent development in my dishes but i've noticed that that kind of nuanced changing you know i actually interestingly spoke with the chef at sapro noodle lab q about this in particular they call it like the uh There's like the first taste, the middle taste and the end taste. And depending upon where your progress is in the bowl, ideally those are fundamentally different because it helps create consistent intrigue in the eating experience. You accomplish this typically by just knowing how the flavor tastes, depending upon the temperature of the bowl. That's probably the primary mechanism. You do that to me, that's really important. So I want to make sure that this bowl doesn't get boring to you. Right? So it's a delicate balancing act of the components to accomplish that goal. Uh, but it tends to result in really balanced and really thoughtful dishes as a result.
0: Balance. I think I know that Abram, you always harp on that point. Um, you know, It's ramen.
3: hard, man. It's hard because ramen, you can quickly veer into like ultra salty or ultra fatty or ultra rich or big volume. And, you know, even some shops are known for that, right? Like what is Jiro if not for big, big, yeah. big,
1: you know, it's so balance is so important and you're, Again, going back to like what Edwin was saying about the company like feel compared to like if there's a master, that's why it's so important with ramen. I mean, it's important with restaurants in general, like once you expand and you have like part timers working, like how do you keep the quality high? Right. But with ramen, I just feel like it's amplified more so than so many other foods because like the feeling of like as you're making the dish to like make that balance perfectly. It's like if you just like have a machine going through the motions, mm-hmm. it just comes out differently. It's like it's like similar to like if you have a really good uh bartender who knows how to make a really good cocktail. Even if the ingredients are like the same, like if you have a robot making that cocktail and you have like a master, it just tastes so much better, you know? Like yeah. so some, there's something that's like that it's like an extra element that can't be like measured that just like makes it special and ramen ha- that is so important in ramen so
3: yeah i mean we talk about this a lot the home cooks and i and i think the big thing is you know there is unfortunately uh, a level of kind of intuitiveness that is required to make the dish well that just comes with making it a bunch and getting really comfortable with what you're trying to accomplish and what you hope to achieve and certain components this is more so than others i think like noodles it's super difficult to make noodles without that intuition uh you have to find the right balance and when you machine it out the intuition is gone it's replaced by machinery and so that means the minutia of the detail of the fixation the kodawari gets lost right and in, instead of in, instead of having consistency so yeah it's it's tough and you know part of the reason that i talk about ramen so much is just because it's super hard and i think people don't realize how difficult it is to make especially to like do it where you're really doing everything from scratch and making everything as uh, fully and as completely as possible
1: totally definitely I mean, definitely. definitely i mean sorry there's probably so many people that don't understand why you don't open your own restaurant like yo like just hire a staff just
3: like do, you do it it's like okay do you have three hundred thousand yeah. dollars and the time yeah. to train everybody <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> make everyone feel inspired to make ramen which is like incredibly labor intensive and kind of boring on the surface you know it's like you're just making soup right who cares but It's not just soup. There's more to it than that.
1: Even if you were behind the chef directing the chef, like, yo, do this next. All right. Now take the noodles out. It would still be difficult to like. Yeah. I mean,
3: you, you guys would be surprised too. Like you say this about like Japanese cooks, like in America, sometimes the cooks are just rambunctious. I'll give you a story. We, we were doing a kit, you know, just like a pretty standard kit. I don't think anything particularly special. And that means I tend to get in the weeds and make most of the stuff myself. But, I work closely with a pretty talented chef who does a lot of the work with me. But there was this one time where we needed to just do eggs, right? Eggs are relatively simple in ramen. They're kind of – that's why they're often like an add-on because they're not particularly complicated. It's a pretty standard procedure. You boil the egg, you shock it, you peel it, you know? So I just needed some cook to do that because we had a lot of stuff on our plate. And like three times in a row, this guy could just not get it done. He'd just forget to put the timer. He would pull them too late. He would not shock them in ice water. It's like we went through like three times as many eggs as we needed to because you just can't train people to really care in the way that people in Japan potentially do care because the, the bowl, the ramen, the dish means so much to them contextually. So it's just all to say like, you know, open a ramen shop. Okay, find me like half a dozen people who really, really care. You know, you got to really, really care to make this
2: yeah. dish well. Yep. Yeah. Can't you open a little four-seat shop in Chicago? You
3: know? <laughs> That's the dream, man. I mean, it would be amazing, right? Like, can you have that, that atmosphere? But you, you know, won't make any money. You'll be blind. Well,
2: the customers go in, eat really quickly, and leave. So, you know, it's a high turnover. <laughs> Nobody talks. hi right,
3: I mean, you've been to Chicago. You, you've been to High Five. Didn't, we had this conversation a couple of years ago how it's like, even at the places that do it decently,
2: their turns are way longer than in Japan. Well, they actually, you know, I went into High Five, and I – Crushed the bowl in in my standard ten minutes. Yeah, right. And I was like, "All right, thank you." And they looked at me like I was insane. They're like, yeah, "You don't want to hang with out? Me. Like, you have forty five yeah. minutes allocated to your seat. Yeah, and yeah. Like, here, have a have a boozy slushy and and chill yeah. out." It was like oh. this. Is
3: literally the same thing with me. The first time I went, I think I you know I finished the bowl in like ten minutes or whatever, and they were like, "Holy crap, you ate that so fast!" So I was like, "This is normal. What are you talking about? You know, they're just there's just a different dining style in the U.S. So, what do you do?"
1: I definitely want money. to do the
0: whole. Uh, I want to do the whole. Uh, you pay and leave. Uh, <laughs> style of uh, ramen <laughs> I
3: shop. can't get away
1: with that. I'm not <laughs> <I much know. laughs> Well, is below that barbecue spot, right?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You went to it, I think, too, April. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. interestingly enough, Edwin is the only one who hasn't gone to that one. Yeah. I don't get out much.
1: That was the darkest ramen <laughs> I've ever been in my life.
3: <laughs> I know it's so dark. You, and this is I shouldn't say this on the podcast, but I will. That restaurant group that owns them yeah. is notorious for making their restaurants dark. I don't know why, but like every restaurant that they own, and they own like seven, they're all dark. Yeah, just that's the
2: steakhouse, super dark. Yeah,
3: super dark. Ocheval, dark.
2: Uh Uh, Mods,
3: dark. It's like, they just like to make it dark. That's what they do.
0: I don't know. You know what they could do is uh, the night goggle experience and kind of create bigger (laughs) dining spaces indoors so that you can still be COVID safe, but uh, in social distance and still uh, make some uh, money off the uh, indoor uh, dining facilities. I think it'd be a thing.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, uh, Brian, the reason I wanted, part of the reason I wanted you on this podcast is because I think you're the only one who's actually eaten Mike's bowls on this call. Uh, other than, Of course, other than Mike. Um, what did you have and what was your experience?
2: Yeah. You know, we've talked about uh, kind of when you go into a ramen shop and you feel that intention of the chef and that sort of plays into it. Well, one of the best be had.
1: honest, Brian, be honest. <laughs> hey, one no, of the greatest I would ever. say that I would
2: give it like a six out of 10 before he gets into it. I'm just
1: joking. I'm just joking.
2: Well, you know, yeah, I went to uh, my first time eating Mike's ramen was at his house in Chicago and he made me miso and, uh, it was excellent, but the whole time he's like nitpicking everything about it. He's like, oh man, <laughs> like, oh, man, the hydration should just be like, oh, like half a percent more. And maybe if I age them for a little bit and that, <laughs> you're like, shut me. up, yeah. not, not wrong, not wrong. It, Did happen, can confirm. Yeah. But it was so good to just have this incredible miso ramen in America that someone's making at home, completely unexpected. And, you know, I com- instantly understood why at the time, you know, people were writing about, about you, Mike, they were saying like the, the best ramen in America is one that you'll probably never even have. And it was <laughs>
3: yeah, that you ridiculous know. Tribune article.
2: Yeah, you know, exactly. I mean, it was, uh, it was an article and that's uh, yeah. out there forever. So we'll a click like, baby, but I'll take a it, <laughs> like batty, but, but Hey, you know, and also that, it, that added to it, you know, I was like, Oh, I'm at the place that everyone wants to go to, but can't. Right.
3: it's a it's a ramen adventure indeed uh but any of you are welcome if you would like to if you're ever in chicago and i'm also in chicago of course abram then <laughs> yes of course happy to serve up something I, I i can't claim it'll be better than anything you've had but i'm happy to do it just because i love making ramen you know
0: sweet well you know let's let's go ahead and jump into miso ramen because you just uh, you know yes, talked about the bowl that you made my favorite
3: my, memes,
0: um, my favorite. So miso ramen exists in different parts of Japan, uh, but I think the one that got popularized the most is the one from Sapporo. And uh, you know, different places claim to be the first, you know, arguably, but who knows? Who cares? Um, <laughs> you know, <I> <laughs> you know, they, you know, they, every place has their own story, but really, Sapporo is one that kind of blew up on a nationwide and to a certain extent worldwide basis. Mm. Um, but what? Let's get into the kind of the Sapporo ramens. Scene and sure. you know, people think Sapporo started with miso ramen, but that's not the case per se, right? It's true, true. I mean, my understanding is that Sa-
3: Sapporo has had ramen in it at least since the 20s, which is long. And even the etymology of ramen one of the folk stories of how the term ramen became ramen because prior to 1950 or so it was called chuka soba or shina soba. Uh, pro- one of the stories is that like some shop was like would say like Haula when the ramen came out, and then that got transversed into ramen. And this was like at some ramen shop in Sapporo. So it, ramen goes back far in Sapporo. It's it's probably you know a, a key fixture of the city even before miso ramen. But definitely, I think what puts the city on the map is that style. There, there's no question there. I think that the other styles exist, but. If you go to Sapporo, you're going to eat miso ramen. Like, the, that's what you're going to do.
0: Right, right. And I heard that uh, the first place to sh- uh, serve uh, ramen in the 20s was a place called Takeya, Takeya Shokudo, which I believe is still around. Did you have a chance to go there? I think they're closed. They're, oh,
3: they're closed. closed. Okay. The oldest existing ramen shop currently in Sapporo is one
0: called Daruma Ken,
3: And I think they've been around, I don't actually know the date, but I think it's like the 50s.
1: 50s, yeah. Brian and I they're, were. Quiet.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I tried to go on my last trip. It's really old school, really old school show you kind of reminiscent of like what you'd get in Tokyo. Um, but what's interesting is that Dharma was founded by the same, it has certain ties to Nishiyama Seimen, which is the biggest premier noodle manufacturer in Sapporo. And they, you know, as we'll talk about, I'm sure have giant legacy in terms of their influence on uh, Sapporo's ramen landscape overall. And particularly In the noodles in miso ramen that have kind of defined the style so it's kind of interesting that that shop still exists but uh i don't know if i'd say it's like the most amazing shop it's just like this kind of crazy old shop that like is in like a fish market which is kind of cool
0: well i think those shops are dope because you know they're necessary because you need to know where things came from to know where and it's definitely a time
3: capsule like even like the toppings are like old like there's the naruto maki you know the fish cake spiral the, the egg on it is like an egg omelet swirl thing, which is kind of weird. I've never seen that in any other bowl. It's like very old school, definitely. it's just so, a show, you
1: know, it's, it's been on my list for a while, but it's so like old school and simple. And there's, yeah. there's been shops that are, like I've wanted to get to more. It's never gotten around to it. Yeah. Brian and I yeah. walk by it and they have signs outside like, we are the oldest ramen shop in the world.
0: Like, <laughs> yes. Well, they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well to put things in context, you know, you know, pre pre-miso, you had uh this is all half ass internet research so don't quote me on this, but uh it looks like the bowls are either torigara or, or chicken based or um kind of sh- shellfish based dashis um with lard and um sesame um just uh so no miso anywhere in sight. Yeah, and then I mean, yeah, yeah. miso is an invention
3: that happened in the 50s arguably.
0: Yeah. And like, you know, talking about Dharamaken and I think, uh, Ryuho, which is another old school shop, which is, I believe, closed down. But, uh, you know, they start off as yatai, like in post-war Japan, just like other parts of, of Japan. And uh, they didn't have miso. So they were serving tonkotsu styles, if I understand correctly. Um, so it wasn't what we think of now. So th- but they were the OGs, um, apparently. When you uh, actually question for Mike, when you went to Dotonaka, did you have a miso bowl or was it something no, else?
3: Yeah, I had to show you, and this was a long time ago. This is like ten years ago or something. Okay,
0: well, yeah, so that but, was your thing, right?
3: I don't think it's changed. Yeah, it was a show you. That's like the bowl to get there.
0: Okay, okay. And then, um, yeah, you mentioned um, Nishiyama Seimen, which is a very important uh, noodle making, uh, uh, not shop, but well, I don't know, factory, I guess. Yeah, yeah, um, company company. And um, you mentioned the ties between Darmaken and, and Nishiyama Seimen. So for the people out there, can you describe what are the typical noodles like for Sapporo's ramen?
3: Yeah. So it's interesting because Nishiyama Seimen works directly with the founding, the the, the store that theoretically invents Miso Ramen to design these noodles that work very closely together. And that's Ajinomoto. Sampei. We'll talk about them in a little bit. But the noodles are defined by a couple key characteristics. The first is they're curly. The second is that they are yellow, and that can be either from egg white, egg yolk, or riboflavin. More typically, they're dyed, basically, uh, uh, or jardania pigment, but some sort of dye to give them a yellow color. Uh, they are, and the last thing is that they are room temperature aged, which is a technique you really don't see outside of Sapporo. This idea of taking a noodle after cutting it and letting it sit kind of in a box somewhere in the corner typically for two to three days and this aging technique changes the structure of the noodle in a distinct way that's pretty noticeable mainly the starch gel condenses and the noodle becomes kind of translucent in appearance so you'll probably notice this when you eat miso ramen uh, at you know Sapporo style places that really do it well or that use nishiyama seima they have kind of this translucent glossy appearance to them and the texture changes it gets denser it gets a little more firm that is really something that nishiyama pioneers as a technique with ajino Sampe. and so you still see noodles like that to this day at at kind of uh those stores and it's like the thing i feel like that kind of defines the bowl in a lot of ways okay well talking about like there's other techniques too but i could go on but for the noodle that that room temperature aging is is definitely the key thing that really sets the noodle apart in a lot of ways,
0: okay. So, for full disclosure, disclosure, I've never been to Sapporo, I've been in Japan for over 15 years. Uh, never been to Sapporo, uh, <laughs>
3: just so to, you, We were talking about this earlier. You've been to Santora, right, in Tokyo, which yes, is I kind have. of a lineage build off. Do you know what noodles they use at that store?
0: Uh, I probably have in my notes, I don't know off the top of my head.
1: Okay. I'd be curious. Um, I my notes, I'll tell you in. 20 seconds. (laughs) Nice, nice.
0: Well, question for Mike, though. Like, you know, it's like in Tokyo, for example, we have uh, Mikawaya Seimen, you know, or or other types of um, uh, noodle companies uh, that have a big chunk of the market in, in this city. In Sapporo, does Nishiyama Seimen have a big chunk of the market out there? I'd say that there's, I mean, it's sort of subjective, but the two that come to mind
3: are Nishiyama Seimen, which owns a lot of these kind of, classic iconic shops and then for some of the more modern shops you get morizumi say and that's another really big one uh they've been around for like i think since the 70s too so there are a bunch there are a handful of others that have some level of uh, market penetration but really those two those are kind of like the gold standard in the city for sure
0: okay nice nice
1: i lied. I don't know where to do
3: <laughs> it's fine. <right? laughs> so, but I was just curious if they have that style. That's all.
1: Master did train at Sumide. So
3: right? Exactly. That's why I was asking because Sumide uses Nishiyama Seimen. So, Surprise.
2: yeah, it's probably Nishiyama. They're they got very loyal customers,
3: and they have pretty good distribution. I Nishiyama actually sells overseas too. Like there are some shops in the US that are buying Nishina noodles which that's well, got
2: developed a, a special technique for shipping frozen noodles and Europe, really, it's big in Europe distribution is Yeah, big in Europe, Europe too, in, right? Yeah. And yeah, then they expanded to the states a couple of years ago. Yeah, uh, there great. you go.
0: If you want authentic Hokkaido noodles, hit them up. Uh, they have a lot of uh information on their site in English. Um mm-hmm. they have it, um so you know, I unencrypted a lot of my notes from their website, to be honest. <laughs> so, but uh, Mike, you mentioned earlier um, uh, a shop that we need to uh, go into very deeply. Ajino um, Ajinomoto.
3: Aji no uh, yeah.
0: So you know, one my half-assed internet research again started in 1950 by a man named morito Moritosan. Um, he was the next train conductor out in Manchuria. And after the war, he came back to Japan and ran an Udon Yatai, not a Ramen Yatai. But apparently, he was neighbors with um, Ryuho and also with Darumaken. So he kind of saw their successes. He's like, show me how you guys do it. And then apparently, he opened his own shop. Uh, yeah, and, th- and then he went on to open his own shop in 1950. Uh, but it was kind of based on the Ryuho Darumaken style of ramen, apparently. So there was no miso per se. Um, but I'm sure all of you guys have been to the shop, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: It's, <laughs> in, it's like inside of like a, it's not inside inside
0: of a department store, store. Inside of
1: like on like the third or fourth floor. Or something. Yeah. It's so bizarre. Yeah. One it's two. like you're
3: in the stationary section or you're in like the home decor section. And then there's like this ramen shop that is arguably one of the most important in the city. Just like sitting there naturally, naturally.
1: Yeah. yeah. No disrespect to this shop. I mean, you got to appreciate the history, but for yeah. me, it was like, go check out the history, but like never again. Like it's yeah,
3: not- well, I think that Ajinomoto Aj- Sampe has been definitely eclipsed by more modern, more contemporary, more thoughtful balls, but you can't deny it's importance to the landscape. If you believe that Miso ramen was invented in this shop, which I mean, I've heard other arguments, but it sure seems like it was invented by this shop and since there's no miso ramen before Ajino Sampe, it kind of sounds like that's probably the likely suspect for its origins. The- so, there's a,
0: a kind of funny urban legend that kind of is floating around about this shop. So, the story goes that the um, customer ordered tonjiru and requested noodles in it. Um, I think he was, he was looking for some extra calories or something. Um, and that's kind of a urban legend that people talk credit to uh, Ajino Sampe, but the owner. Says that story is basically bullshit, and um, apparently, you know, this is in the in the '60s. You know, the Sapporo Olympics are going on, so there's a lot of buzz around around the uh, city and um, a lot of outside kind of influence, um, in t- or in terms of uh, oh. attention. And so the story I I heard is that um, there's a Swedish food maker called Maggie, and uh, the president of Maggie. Um, was talking about uh, miso as an ingredient and says, you know, I wish, I think this is a great ingredient that Japan has. And I think it'd be great if they could find new ways to develop it. And this was an article in Reader's Digest or something. And Ajin Osampe's uh, master, he saw that article and said, like, well, let me play around with this. And apparently, he tinkered with it and finally put it on the menu in the early 60s. So Ajin Sampe was around for a good 10 plus years before miso even be, uh, showed up on their menu yeah that's
3: interesting it's interesting because you know the other the big origin story of miso ramen is like in yamagata and that's in the 60s in 1960 at du shanhai i don't know if i totally buy that because there's some documentation that suggests that like miso ramen has been on that menu since 1955 so that's a solid five years before this story happens now i i can only speak anecdotally but like ten years ago, I interviewed the the ten show there and talked about it and asked about all these questions. And his i his kind of he's the son of the creator of Ono san. Uh, his uh, general story was just that like you were in post war Japan. They were looking for ways to bump up calories in dishes. So one day they just started adding miso to the ramen, just to, like give more. And they were adding vegetables and more lard. It's like a way to like give people more calories. It wasn't meant to be like this really thoughtful composed thing. It's just like bump up the the volume basically. So I, you know, there's always these kind of folksy stories about the origins here. Um, I've definitely been responsible for spreading the one about the tonjiru, which is probably not true. Uh, Who, who really knows? I mean, if it was really, you know, this is like 60 years ago, like people forget.
0: Definitely. I think uh, people like to rewrite
2: history and, uh, so well, we never know. We the like
3: truth. you know, we like this, like, oh, it was just one day a customer asked, and there it was. It was magnificent. A
2: know? tired old salary man on his last <laughs> legs needed the energy to get home through the yeah. bitter yeah. winter cold in Sapporo. Yeah, exactly. He asked for miso exactly. that it sticks to your bones. <laughs> well, there you go.
1: I got you a know, question about oh. Yeah, go ahead. I know that the number one like instant noodle like instant ramen in India is called Maggie. Is that the same company?
0: It could be. It could be. They, um, they have products, even, you know, um, well,
1: like well, but, that seasoning
0: company,
3: too, exactly. right. That does all of those like kind yeah, of umami yeah. sauces. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: I know that was, that's so big in India. They don't have like top ramen, but they have Maggie. <laughs> oh, so interesting. Yeah. yeah how, is, how is the Maggie instant ramen? It's all like, uh, it's like curry flavored, you know, <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting. I, yeah, <laughs> they don't, the way they eat it they don't uh at least like where i was eating it the way they made it is they don't have a lot of soup so it's kind of like they leave a little bit of soup in the bottom but like not it's not like you get a bowl of noodle soup it's like a bowl of noodles like resting in like a little bit of soup at the bottom it's kind of interesting
0: <laughs> indian yakisoba
1: yeah yeah but, yeah. <laughs> Indian Mase Soar or
0: something. Uh, there you go. There you go.
3: Interesting. Right, back, to,
1: back to miso. <laughs> All right. Back to miso. So,
0: you know, my understanding then is kind of miso really blew up in the 60s. Um, you know, again, I was mentioning the um, Sapporo Olympics, so Winter Olympics. So you'd have the, uh, Hokkaido really going out and promoting themselves. And, you know, they would go out to department stores like Takashimayas in the Tokyo or Osaka and uh have a Hokkaido Road Show. They still do this to this day, um, where they have um just all these Hokkaido vendors get together and just sell their wares. Uh, sell sell their promote their Hokkaido food. So you'll have places that sell like Hokkaido Koroke, uh with potatoes from from Hokkaido. You'll have uh um seafood like um uh Ikura and things like that. Uh dairy, you know, soft soft cream uh, with uh Hokkaido dairy and things like that. And you'll also have Maybe a, maybe a one or two ramen shops as well that uh, go on these road shows. So that was a thing that's kind of started in the '60s. You had Dosanko, which is a national chain, um, kind of spread from in the '67. You've had the Sapporo Ichiban Miso instant ramen launched in 1968, um, and yeah, so it was kind of a boom time for the Sapporo Miso scene. Um, also, question for Mike: You know, we at this time you would see different ramen clusters. Um, So you would see things like the um, Kouraku Ramen Meitenga, which is actually closed. You'd have the Ganso Sapporo Ramen Yokocho, which Mm -hmm. started in 1971, and uh, Sapporo Meisho Shin Ramen Yokocho in 1976. Mm -hmm. Are these places still around?
3: Yes, both of those are still around. And now there's also the in the Sapporo train station, the Ramen Kyoakoku, which is like another version of these. Basically, these are just like amalgamations of Uh, various ramen shops packed into these kind of tight, small spaces. I mean, Yokocho translates like alley or something. So like the Gonzo Yokocho is this tight, tiny alley with like 10 shops and like maybe a 2,000 square foot radius. Very, very small, very compact, Uh, basically only for tourists. (laughs) I mean, I don't think any of the shops there are noteworthy. Frankly, there, I mean, uh, the Gonzo has a Shirakaba Sanso branch, and that's a pretty good chain, but that's like it. At one point, there were though. So, like 10 years ago, maybe even there was this shop, Kedan, which made like this crazy tomato ramen. It was run by this ex baseball player, but like that's the exception. 99% of the shops that come in and out of this Yokocho are just standard, run of the mill places to for like. Tourists and not even Japanese tourists necessarily, but tourists from everywhere.
2: Like you'll see, hey, like the, Bourdain. Bourdain went there. I know Bourdain went
3: there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is funny. RIP, legend. But yeah, I saw that. I was like, ooh, mistake. Yeah. yeah,
3: I met him two months before he went to Hokkaido, and I was like, and we we, we actually talked very briefly. I was like, oh, you got to try the ramen. I wish I'd given him like one recommendation that wasn't the Yokocho. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, to anyone. He <laughs> the, the, like those yokochos, like those ramen streets in general, are just all tourist traps. Yeah, <laughs> In like, Sapporo, like all the ones that have the seafood, like shio seafood ramen, like right. with, like squid, it's they're all tourist traps. No locals go to any of those places, right? Totally. Oh. I mean, you it, most of the locals will say
3: the same shops are like the best, but they're never going to be in the yokocho, guaranteed. Yeah.
0: So, then for example, the shops in the Yokocho, do they have like um, a honten somewhere and they actually opened the a branch in there? It
3: Sometimes. depends.
1: Case by case. Rarely.
3: Yeah. Like, again, Shirakaba Sanso is in, has a branch in the Ganso Yokocho. They're further out, I think, west, I want to say. Their honten is further out west. And that's a pretty good shop. I wouldn't say it's like my favorite, but it's a pretty good shop. But they have a branch in the Yokocho. A lot of them. Are just random like tiny ramen shops that just appeal to
0: tourists, though. All right. Well, I don't want to waste too much time on tourist shops, but one thing I do need yeah. to touch on uh, is when you talk to people outside of Sapporo when they, and ask them about their image of Sapporo ramen or miso ramen, you know, they'll think miso with corn and butter, which don't I know is thing, <laughs> so. Like, I know obviously it's you know sacrilege to talk about uh, to, to even consider putting that in your bowls, but just how did it become a thing? My understanding is that this happened around
3: is either during the Olympics or shortly thereafter, there was a shop that opened up very close to the train station and to appeal to tourists, they started putting Hokkaido ingredients quote unquote on their ramen, which as you've mentioned, dairy is a very common ingredient from Hokkaido. So butter makes sense. And And corn corn, really well known from Hokkaido. Yeah. I mean, Hokkaido in general is very agricultural centric. I mean, even the founding of Sapporo is, you know, the city is founded by the Japanese government in tandem with University of Massachusetts Amherst to be an agriculture college. So that's where Hokkaido University is designed. It's an agriculture centric place, right? So uh, these kind of land products are very prevalent, and corn in particular becomes like kind of associated with Hokkaido. So some guy just decided, let's put. So the story goes, at least let's just put Hokkaido ingredients on this ramen and, you know, people will eat it up. And I guess they did because it's definitely gotten some level of association with the city, but only in the sense of like somebody who doesn't eat there for more than a day, basically.
2: But how did it become such a big thing with with overseas tourists? Because I get this question all the time. Anthony <laughs> Bourdain.
3: I mean, I think so. Yeah, I think I think what happens is you see, like a couple of these touristy spots, really doing it. So all the places in the Yokochoes do it, right? Because again, for tourists, you experience one bowl. It's pretty provocative because you're right; most places don't do this. So you just kind of assume, like, this has got to be Hokkaido thing. Like, butter and corn is pretty weird. It's got to be Hokkaido thing. But as a, and I don't. I want to be clear. And Brian and I have actually talked about this. I don't think butter and corn as a topping is inherently a bad thing. I think actually it can be done well, but I think it's intention. Like, again, we talk about intention a lot and making ramen. The intention of this was like, let's get the money. Let's get these dumb tourists money. And that bothers me. Right. Like if you want to make a butter corn ramen, do it with like really thoughtful composition. And it can probably be pretty tasty, but don't just like make a miso and put butter and corn on it because you're, you say you're from Hokkaido,
1: which is where it comes Yo. from. It's my turn. <laughs> Go ahead and cook. It's total bullshit. Look <laughs> okay. at okay. Oh my god, I'm so I'm getting heated right now. <laughs> I need to calm down. Going off of what Mike's saying, using local Hokkaido ingredients, it's agriculture, yada yada yada. All true. All of the shops that put corn in their ramen, all of them. Where does the corn come from? it comes Come from a can a can it does, it's, yeah. not <laughs> even corn. it's not even corn so look at yeah. if you're gonna use corn as a topping in your ramen that's fine but use like fresh like awesome high level corn and i don't have a problem with it but if you're using like yellow corn straight out of a can that's bullshit to me and corn in Japan is very seasonal and it's something that you can get in the summertime and it's not cheap. Totally different in yeah. the U S where you have corn year round, you can buy like four for a dollar. Like, you know, it's so, it's like, there's an yeah. of corn in the U S in Japan. It's like corn is like kind of like a premium vegetable in the summertime. It's like over a dollar for one, for one yeah. corn on the cob. So yeah, like you'll see occasionally you'll see the gentes like I've seen uh Shichisai do it. You'll see some shops like Shono's done it in the summertime doing like a seasonal limited bowl like 20 per day with fresh corn. But it's very rare and 99% of the shops that have corn as a topping, it's bullshit to me and they're using canned corn and I think it's like detrimental to ramen in general. Done. D- I agree. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah, that's the nail in the coffin for corn and butter. Um, but
3: again, like it's not the flavor or the idea that's the problem. It's the, the fact that the, the intention is misleading, right? Yeah. We're saying here that some chef in Sapporo was like, mm, I'm going to get these foreigners. I'm going to get these tourists by putting corn and butter on this and like being intentionally deceiving. That's yeah. where I have the issue, not with the idea foundational.
1: I would you know. agree. There are some like kind of like junkier style shops or like EAK style shops where like you can just get it as an add-on topping and like yo, like if customer wants to like order corn as like an add on, like fine, go for it, you know? But yeah, I, I agree with you. Like misleading as it's like, oh, Hokkaido is like the land of corn. Like we have this <laughs> corn topping. Like, yeah, that's bullshit to me. Yeah.
3: It's from a can. It's always from a can. It's always from a can. It's crazy.
0: I think one other way that it's spread out, and I was kind of just did a quick Google search. You know, I, t- I talked earlier about the Sapporo miso, um, Sapporo ichibang miso flavor. If you look at the packaging, they have corn. So I think they kind of seal that image nationally that corn needs to be in your miso your yeah, ramen. So
1: yeah. fuck you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go for it, my man. Uh, all
0: right. So enough about bullshit ramen. Let's talk about real ramen. Um, so, influential shops in Sapporo. Uh, Mike, mm-hmm. what are you shops that people need to know about? So At least from an old-school point of view. For
3: Miso, for Miso, I think you have three phases that Miso goes through. The first is Ajino Sampe, which I think is cool to visit. But, candidly, you know, if you search Ajino Sanpei on Google, one of the suggested things is Mazui, which is like, Ajino Sampe is gross, basically. So, like, there's some consensus on the internet. This place is not that good, but historically, it's super important. So. If you are into that kind of thing, it's worth going to. The second phase is, and is, is this style from Day, basically this June Sumi K style, which is kind of an uplifting or hyper kind of richened inversion of uh, the standard miso ramen. It's primarily denoted uh, not by a, a thick layer of fat over the top, which is pretty luxurious, and so these things command a little bit of a premium price. And then the third genre, the third wave, it's kind of these Norenwake or split-off shops that emerge from these kind of legendary institutions. And so the main one that comes to mind is Saimi. Saimi opens in the 90s. And they're like, in my opinion, like the gold standard bowl of miso ramen. I think it's like technically done really perfectly. It's been run by just, there's just one shop, just this crazy dude who does the walk station. He wears like a bandana and he has gray bushy hair. And he's like always there. It's his shop. There's not a bunch of branches. He's been doing it forever. It's, it's, a, it's an unquestionably delicious bowl of ramen. Uh, and it's a little bit more balanced than the Sampe one, which is frankly too salty, or the Junren Sumire style bowls, which are too fatty and too over the top, too extravagant. And then from there... It just splits off into classic Kotowari stuff, much like the rest of Japan. So, you know, now you're even seeing like some of these Tokyo-style show you bowls emerging in uh, Sapporo, and you're seeing other styles too. But I feel like generally that three phase, that three kind of wave of miso ramen is how I typically categorize miso in the city.
0: Okay, for those who don't know, Sumida started in 1964, and yeah. uh, they're known for it. Yeah. Good. So their story
3: is interesting mm-hmm. because they start as one shop and then they close and then the two brothers who were the sons of the original owner decide to open their own respective shops and they split off. One goes as the name Sumire and the other goes as the name Junren. So they're technically very similar, but you'll notice that they're very different at the same time too because shops differ even if they don't want to, you know. Uh
0: very true, very true. And uh, you mentioned kind of the lineage of Su- uh, Sumire, and there are some legendary, legendary, or not, well, really, really good yeah. shops. Uh, you know, they have a little bit more time to go before they call themselves legendary. But um, yeah, you mentioned Saimi as, uh, prob- actually, it does qualify as legendary probably at this point. I would
3: say, yeah, I mean, Saimi is definitely legendary. I mean, Saimi is consistently the top rated shop in Hokkaido on like any ranking website you go to, uh, you know. They're I mean, it's like the quintessential well-made miso bowl. Like if you only have one shop to go to, it's definitely one that I would consider. Put it on your list as an option. It's not mandatory because what's mandatory? But it's really, I mean, it's genuinely a well-executed bowl ramen.
1: I would agree. I think everything that Mike has said, he articulated very well. I couldn't have said it better myself as far as like the breakdown of the styles. And I agree that Saimi is the gold standard for miso ramen. It is one of the few shops that is not only doing miso ramen at a very high level, but it doesn't have that like chain feel in the same yeah. way that a lot of the other big names do where they're kind of just like companies now. And it's not like a mom and it doesn't have that mom and pop feel. Um. And yeah, if you're going to eat one bowl of miso ramen in Sapporo, that's the one to eat.
0: So question for uh, probably for all of you guys, actually, if for someone like me, who's never eaten at the uh, Sapporo Sumire and Mm Saimi, what's the difference? I think it's
3: just extravagance. Like the, the Sumire style bowl has tons of fat, like a quarter inch thick cap of melted lard over the top. And they both use a similar approach, of like, which is derived from Sampei, of cooking vegetables in a wok that has lard in it, and then deglazing with a chintan-style soup, uh, and then adding miso, tare and whisking to combine, and then pouring it over these curly noodles. And they all use, like I think uh, uh, Sumire uses uh, Nishiyama ajino sampei uses Morizumi seimen, so that other big one. But they all kind of use the same style of noodles. So the difference really is in tare composition and in fat content, in my opinion, and then also in wok treatment. Sumide cooks their vegetables for a while. They're almost like kind of buttery by the time that they end up on the plate. They're like translucent. There's a little bit of onion in there. They're, they're very cooked. Uh, the fat content is borderline egregious. It's just like so much, it's a crazy amount. And the bowl is extremely hot as a result. It's super insulated. It's like, like burn your mouth no matter what happens. Um, the miso composition is more rounded. It has a little bit more red miso, a little bit of darker miso in it as well. Ajino Sampe, by contrast, I think they're using a much more reasonable amount of fat in the bowl. You'll notice this, like, it's still got fat on top, but it kind of beads on the surface as opposed Ajino to Sanpe. laying full slick. Oh, sorry, not Ajino Sampe. Uh, Siamese. Siamese. Yeah, yeah. Ajino, <laughs> I mean Ajino Sampe has a crazy amount of fat. It's like a separate <laughs> thing. Yeah, It's like wild. But Siamese has like nice beads of fat on the surface without it's still fatty, but not egregiously. So I think it's much more balanced and the miso profile is definitely leans more towards white miso. It's definitely like a lighter, a little sweeter miso in comparison. Um, so it, again, like, you know, I talk about how balance is super critical and ramen. Abram and I say balance is so critical. Siamese miso is way more balanced. It's just like way more balanced in all regards.
1: I feel like. Okay, Well yeah, To summarize that and not nerd out. <laughs> Siami Siami, I can't help it.
3: I'm
0: sorry, man. I can't okay.
1: help it. I'm just messing with you. But yeah, to me, com- to compare the two, Siamese is a much more balanced bowl, and the soup is just much more drinkable as compared to Sumide and Junben. for me. There's just such a the fat layer of that melted lard on the top. Once you're done yeah. with the noodles and all the toppings, it's like almost challenging to drink the soup because there's so much... Yeah there's just that it's like a clear just like border of, of melted fat on the top so that's a big that biggest difference to me
2: yeah definitely saimi almost looks delicate you know it's it served in these beautiful kind of craft bowls and mm-hmm. it's kind of like some of these shops in tokyo that opened that were kind of uh trying to attract more females and people who want to eat more beautiful healthy looking ramen and i mean i know it's not i not a uh, it's still a Sapporo miso Ramen, but it really looks like something that you're that's not going to destroy you if you're not used to crushing a lot of bowls.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a good point about the bowl. The bowl is, like, really technically beautiful, right? Like, it's got great color contrast. They put, like, this ginger on the chashu, so, like, halfway through eating it, you're kind of changing the bowl and, you know, making it, like, slightly less intense, like, revigorates it in some way. Like, I don't know. It's just way more thoughtful, you know?
1: is is saimi your favorite bowl of miso ramen in japan no oh
3: but my favorite is you're gonna laugh when i tell you my favorite Deslus. oh it's junren <laughs> wow. yeah which i know is not the best bowl like saimi is objectively a better bowl right and there's these newer shops that are objectively better you know like you know uh mitsuba is an incredible bowl of miso ramen um there's this what's the other one uh the other one that spun off from siami that's really good too there's these other known and Wake shops that are just doing better more technical bowls but i just kind of like how dirty and kind of intense that bowl is and there's some nostalgia for me about that bowl in my life where like It was like the winter and it was like super cold and you kind of hunker down and this thing blows your face off and it's super hot. I'm I'm kind of nervous about life living in Japan. So it just like hits those layers for me in a way that no other bowl does. Objectively, Simeon is better, but I don't know if I'd call it like the one that hits the same like emotional Mm -hmm. uh, resonance, which is, we talk about like what our favorite bowls are. So many of them are decided by external factors, not just the ramen itself. Like Brian, you've mentioned all these crazy ramen shops you go to that are like in the middle of nowhere. It's like, you know, it has this crazy story. It was like a trek
2: that impacts how you felt about it. Huge part of it, of course. True, true. Brian, how about yourself? My favorite miso is yukikaze. Ah. Yukikaze, really? I just love it. It, you know, it has this really thick piece of chashu. Yeah. Uh, well, you know one thing a little corny but it's uh not corn it's potatoes <laughs> they put these sort of fried shoestring potatoes on top which you know it's like a hokkaido ingredient potatoes mm-hmm. and a big thing up here but i just i like that little bit of extra texture and mm-hmm. and i like the vibe in that shop you know the whole wall is covered there's just there's like a hundred of these autographed plaques mm-hmm. and i remember the very first time i went there i sat right in front of uh Oh, what was his name? I forget his name, but he is one of the most famous male adult film actors in Japan.
0: <laughs> I think his name is Edwin.
2: His name
1: is was- <laughs> <laughs> Wow. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure you uh, recognize him immediately, Brian. Yeah,
2: I don't want to comment on that. Yeah. You do. Well, because it says a lot of these autograph plaques underneath it, sometimes they'll have it printed out exactly what they are in, in a legible font. And it says the golden finger <laughs> oh my god and at the time abram and i were working for weekly playboy magazine and right. i would uh, i would skim every issue so i did learn a little bit about the adult video industry and i knew that he was the man with the golden finger
0: there you go i hope he washed his hands before he ate that bowl wow very dangerous uh, yeah bro. Adrian, how about yourself? Um, what do you enjoy the my, most?
1: My favorite miso, my favorite bowl of miso ramen in Japan is not in Hokkaido. It, mm. used, it used to be in Chiba at a shop called Kindu, but that shop closed down.
2: Oh, Kindu closed down?
1: Yeah, man. It was oh, open like 50 years. Legendary wow. shop. Um, closed down. My favorite bowl of miso ramen in Japan right now is in Osaka. <laughs> don't <laughs> real. Unbelievable. And a called Hayato. Hayato uh, in Osaka. Ramen Hayato. Oh my God. It's fire. Fire. <laughs> the master is from Hokkaido and he trained at like some shops in Sapporo. And then he ended up training after that. He moved to Osaka and trained at Kadoya Shokudo.
3: Mm, nice.
1: Legendary Osaka shop. And he has like a few, I think he has a few bowls like shoyu, I think he has a shio, but the miso lights out. Check it out. That's all I got to say. We're checking out.
0: On the list. On the list.
1: Yep. All right.
0: All right. I so do we... want to take one quick step back. Um, we've talked all, you know, about all these different miso shops, but we actually didn't talk about how it's actually made. I don't want to go too deep into it, but for the people out there who don't know, they might just think that there's a miso tare and you put the soup in and then you put the, you make both the noodles, you put the uh, miso tare in, you put the uh, uh, soup in, but it's not a matter of that. There's actually a wok involved. Yeah. So.
3: Wok is very classic
0: in Sapporo's ramen
3: landscape in general, even outside of miso ramen, it's become kind of a component of a lot of shops. So you'll, you'll just see that as like a, as a tool in those kitchens. So very quickly, uh, can you
0: kind of go through just what's the process of making a typical bowl of miso ramen? Style? Sure.
3: So typically pork chintan, light pork soup, basically clear pork soup. Uh, you heat up a wok, you put an incredible amount of lard in the wok. You toss in some vegetables at Ajino Sampe, it's onion at uh, other restaurants. It's typically bean sprouts. You cook those real quick. Uh, then you add uh, the soup to the wok. So it kind of deglazes the wok, picks up all of that charred flavor. And then you add the miso tar into that kind of soup-filled wok, whisk it to combine, and then you pour it over the noodles that are sitting in the bowl, which have been cooked already. So it's definitely an unorthodox approach in comparison to like your standard ramen assembly.
0: Definitely, definitely. I think um, so people who don't realize it, I think that's something I wanted to point out. Um, so whenever you get your bowls, sometimes it feels really – like flash fried and really kind of a freshly out of the uh, walk type of a taste when you're drinking a bowl of soup. That seems kind of weird, but mm-hmm. that's the reason why.
1: And yeah. I want to, I want to jump in and say, I think this is a reason why this style is duplicated well in other places. It's not in comparison to place like Kyushu where some of the shops have had the soup going for like, you know, decades or like they have the mototare that has been going for years and years a lot of the composition of the bowl happens in the walk on the spot so in my opinion like there are true there are many great miso ramen shops in Sapporo but there's a lot of great miso ramen shops in the Tokyo area and you can Mm -hmm. have bowls on par with the best bowls in Sapporo in Tokyo where you whereas you can't do that with like some of the Kyushu tonkotsu styles. Mm-hmm.
0: Very true. Very true. So it's, uh, you know, you, most Chinese restaurants will have a big burner. So in theory, you could kind of add miso ramen to the menu and it wouldn't be a big, big change for the, uh, for the chefs there. Um, but yeah, tonkotsu, you just can't really duplicate. You have to kind of start from scratch and then pick your spot and be there for decades before it really gets to that deep level. So,
2: And you got to stink up the neighborhoods. So. Yes. Yes, you do. <laughs>
0: Yes, you do.
1: Right. You're, yeah. you're used to doing that, right?
2: <laughs>
3: and the Hokkaido folks do not like the stink either. So you don't find a ton of these, like, Hakata-style Tonkotsu places up north either.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, taking a step back to the um, how miso ramen is made, um, you know, every – to me, not every bowl, but like a lot of bowls, regional bowls, have a certain purpose to it. So – for example, the lard, the amount of lard in the Miso Ramen bowl, there is a purpose to it. It's not just to get people fat, per se, although that's another side effect. Um, But what is the purpose of using that much lard in a bowl up north?
3: I mean, everyone says it's like, it's cold, so it keeps the heat in. And it does keep the heat in, there's no question. Fat is an insulator. But I don't really know if that's why. I mean, I think it was mostly a caloric thing, frankly. Like Again, that fits with the standard narrative of Ajino Sambi was trying to bump up calories on the menu. So it's like add miso to this, add vegetables to this, add fat to this. You know, uh, you know, it just kind of is one of those things where it kind of comes together, though, appropriately. But mm. you're seeing the more modern of a miso shop you find, the less fat they're putting on the bowl, right? Like these shops that have opened in the last five years, they're putting like maybe a tablespoon of fat, which is not a lot compared to – these older shops, which are like quarter cup, crazy amount of fat or something ridiculous like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's kind of get into the um, present-day scene for Sapporo-style uh, uh, shops. So, you know, Brian and Abram, uh, you know, you guys talked about shops that do miso just as well outside of Sapporo. Um, what are ones that people like, – you mentioned your number one shops, but just in general, what are other shops that people should be take note of? Let's start with Brian.
2: Uh, outside of Hokkaido, yes, yeah. I mean, there's you know, there's Niigata style. You have all these places that are famous for miso. Kyoto is famous for like a white miso, and so of course, all of them have capitalized and and people love to blend, you know, with this kotowari style. But in you know, in Tokyo, we got some great shops, Hanamichi. Ah, oh, yeah, awesome Tokyo style miso ramen. They've given rise to uh a place in ogigubo called hook which is
1: mm. like that's a good one that's a very good one yeah
0: i liked there. it a lot
2: uh, there's a place that opened uh it's a little bit west of west side of tokyo called uzura that uses all tokyo ingredients mm. and they kind of match their their tokyo made miso with uh, uh gobo like they make a the oil right Oil, using gobo burdock root so it has this really earthy smelling aromatic oils in it very different very kodawari but yeah you really see these these kodawari things and the one thing the most kodawari miso ramen i've ever had i think it's on the menu now although i don't know it's mat- matador ah, uh, the beef place
1: i had that one oh too. yeah
2: did you make a video about that well, I've made a couple of videos. So he had a miso place, but he was adding a new menu item. I think this was maybe a year, year and a half ago. And he invited me to try it out. And the miso is made, uh, it's made with miso from Izu, uh, which is uh, close to Tokyo, a little south of the peninsula, uh, from this place called Natural Kitchen, which was a crowdfunded campaign that basically raised money and bought an abandoned children's elementary school. They make the miso in the children's elementary school. And then while it's aging for years, they play children's songs to the miso on a speaker. Mm. What? <laughs> so they play like the music that children would be singing inside this abandoned elementary school. They wow. play it to the miso. And there it is. I mean, it's also, you know, it's all natural. It's using the Koshihikari rice from Izu. So, you know, it's definitely a high quality miso, but yeah. You want to get kodawari That's wild. You better be playing. That music.
1: is insane. I saw some video online, some sake brewer that does that with his, with his like fermenting rice. He plays like classical music. Yep.
2: <laughs> yep. Uh...
3: Why, why, what, what is the hypothesis for that? Like, why do they do that?
1: I mean, why do they massage the cows in Wagyu? Right, like well, they
2: massage the cows because their digestive system isn't working anymore because they're kept in such cramped quarters, and they massage them to literally push the shit out. Okay, never mind that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Came
3: back thing. with that answer right quick.
0: <laughs> well, maybe it's more like uh, when you play Mozart to your, uh, you know. Maybe in in the stomach still, you know. <laughs>
3: probably the hypothesis that like a certain, you know, vibration helps the koji do the fermentation or something. You know, I don't know. It's Probably some. No,
0: some I think they just like. That. I think the guy just likes kids' songs. <laughs>
1: Maybe yeah. Let's not cool. over,
0: let's not overthink this. <laughs>
1: worth 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 checking out. Let's go back to the miso ramen.
0: Let's do let's do. So uh, Abram, from your side, um, what are some notable? Uh, Miso uh, styles outside of not not styles. Well, I'm talking about like um, for example, like sumire uh, style shops that outside of Hokkaido, Sapporo
1: Sapporo style miso. Yeah, the ones that Brian mentioned are good shops, but they're kind of more original or like you know Hanamichi is like kind of like Tokyo style miso, I guess you could say, right? Yeah, it's Um, no Oshima. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Oshima is a famous one. That's isn't that near Oshima Station, and it's called Oshima, right? yes (laughs) um then what else santora is probably the my favorite that's open like within the past two years in tokyo that's sapporo style in the center of tokyo near idabashi kagurazaka area erogawa bashi and that's like yeah it's i think that's as good as any of the top class sapporo shops in sapporo in my opinion and the guy trained at Sumide. Um, and then and I know, Edwin, you wrote a few more ones in our notes here. Asahi Chonai Kai, that's a good one. Itabashi Fukudo in Asakusabashi is another good one. There's a couple more like K that are in uh, Kanagawa that opened up. I know Taiko is one that's really good. Um, man, there's a couple more. Um, and then off, I'll just name a few shops that are kind of like off the grid that I think are worth checking out. One in Yokohama is called Do You Say Ken. Have any of you guys been to that one? Do You Say Ken?
0: It's on my list, but I haven't been. Yep.
1: That one is like, it's very near, I think it's very near uh, another famous shop. I believe it might be near Trick, maybe. Maybe just like a couple minute walk. But funky shop, super like kind of like eccentric master with a wild atmosphere. And the Miso Ramen has like, Some uh, various spices that make it original. It's a unique bowl of miso. Definitely worth checking out. And then the other one that I like a lot, um, the shop isn't known for miso, but most people know the old school Tokyo shop Kazuya in Meguro. Um, One of the apprentices of Kazuya opened a shop in Okubo. I know, Brian, you've been there. I believe it's called Menya Yu. Um, why you, you, and that shop is known for shoyu ramen, as is Kazuya, shoyu chashu men and wonton chashu men. But he offers a bowl of miso wonton chashu men that is, oh, it's so good. It is so good. It's one of those bowls I drink till the last drop of soup every time. So, menya you in Shin Okubo, Koreatown, get the miso chashu wonton men. Boom.
0: On the list. On the list. Yeah. So for Brian and Abram, do you see... How do you see the evolution of Sapporo-style miso ramen? I'm like, so like you, for these new school shops, like the Santoras and Asahi Chonakais, how does... Is there a difference, or do you see any kind of a, a trend about how they've evolved out of Sumire?
2: I think the trends that to get rid of so much oil, to make it less mm. it's like fatty you know it's only good in the dead of winter when when you're freezing cold and you just want fat because you're you're freezing up in Sapporo I think that's a big uh big evolution in it
1: I would agree I think that's one I think also the progression of like developing your own miso blend is kind of like a, a trend making it more cold wadi. like how do you make it more special like more your own I know, Edwin, you've been to that shop, uh, Yadoya in Nakameguro, which is a fairly new shop, right?
0: And they do make their own miso in-house, which I thought was kind of cool.
1: So, yeah, and he makes his, like, own pickles, too, right? Like, from some random, uh, like, mountain vegetable or something. I can't remember.
0: Yeah, he has a yamakurage. Um, He makes that, yeah, which is is new.
1: That's new good i really like that shot like he's doing like a sapporo miso style but he kind of like has you know made it his own and added elements that are like the things that he's doing in-house so that it doesn't have that just like replicated like a uh, cookie cutter feel to it you know
0: i felt just, a lo- yeah i felt a lot of purpose behind it and i appreciated just, it my
1: number one complaint when i have like the sumide junren style is it's just like you know, I like, I've been, you know, Sumire has a branch in Yokohama. It's good, but it's like, I'm just like, yeah, I've had this before. There's nothing new and exciting to me here. And I don't want to drink all the soup. So yeah. Like it's a time
3: capsule, you know, it's like this yeah. thing that's existed since the seventies and it hasn't yep. really changed.
1: Nope.
0: Yep. righty. Well, um, I think got some uh, good thoughts and good ideas um, from that. Um, so let's wrap things up. Let's start with um, Mike. So, what are you up to these days? Where can people find, you know, your kits? You know, what do you want to promote? Uh, you guys can follow me on
3: Instagram at ramen underscore underscore Lord. And that's because, uh, the one with just one underscore is taken. So that's kind of unfortunate, but it is what it is. <laughs> you should give World it back to the you. internet. I post about all my weird experiments and ramen makings and, uh, my kits and everything else there. So, and then occasionally, you know, still posting on Reddit, but typically Instagram is where you guys can reach me.
0: Nice. Nice. Well, make sure to follow him and uh, make sure to read the book of ramen. Uh, if you want to, uh, learn how to make your own bowls. Uh, so Brian, how about yourself? How are things?
2: Yeah, things are good. I mean, ramen adventures on all social media platforms. And I just started doing Twitch streaming a week ago. Oh, oh yeah. How'd that go? Out. Yeah, I want to hear. It's going pretty good. You know, I got uh, I got affiliated after seven days, which is uh, apparently pretty...
0: Like a checkmark on Twitter or something?
2: Uh, yeah, basically it means like, I can earn money off of it so people can subscribe to my channel or they can send me bits i'm still learning about the the twitch uh, sort of vernacular and and lifestyle but i'm doing irl streaming which is um, stands for in real life but basically i go outside and and when i'm going to ramen shops to document it for the blog or for youtube now i also have a a, a live stream with me and you can catch me on there and nope. say hello and chat in real time
0: there you go. You can stalk, <laughs> Don't uh, make sure to check that out. If you want to see what uh, hunting is like in Tokyo, um, that's a great, great way to see what's going on live. Uh, Abram, how about yourself?
1: Um, yeah, I'm working on uh, Ramen Beast newsletter right now on Substack. That should be new one, should be dropping this week. And might try to make some more frequent drops. I know before I said we were going to do it once a month, but still tinkering around, trying to figure out a good format. but Look for that coming soon. And can I say one more thing about Sapporo ramen? Please While do. We we cut off. I know this, this episode was about miso, and Sapporo is known for miso ramen. But a lot of the top ramen shops in Sapporo right now are not doing miso. So I just want to tell people if they go to Sapporo and they're like, all right, we got to eat like all this miso ramen. Yeah, eat some miso. But don't hesitate to like try some of the other styles, not the touristy spots that we mentioned before, but like there's a lot of other shops doing things at a high level, like new school styles um, that are worth checking out. So I just wanted to throw that in there. No, that's a good point.
0: Excellent point. So if you guys want to know where get the ramen beast app and uh, check out where he's been on in Mm Sapporo and you'll know exactly what's up.
1: And if it's not an app, if it's not an app, Yeah, yeah. Check Ramen Adventures. And if it's not on Ramen Adventures, just send Mike a DM and he'll know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You guys (laughs) are in the
3: Jiro. Jiro is
1: terrible. Yeah, I got I got no comment on Sapporo Jiro.
0: Ooh, that's harsh.
1: harsh. It was right. It was alright. I'm I'm
0: definitely not a Jiro again,
1: that's for sure. (laughs) I had to get the stamp though. You
2: got it. i checked it off the list.
0: All right, nice, nice. Well, as for myself, I'm Edwin, aka The Ramen Schmo. Make sure to download, listen, and leave a five star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell your Ramen Eating friends about Ramen Hunter. That's all for now. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you.